I realized I managed to get up here without my um, water bottle, so I'm gonna ask Miranda really quickly. Thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> um, for any of you who are single in the room, if you want to be successful in life, find an amazing spouse. She's pretty cool. Um, so I am Dale, um, and I'm married to Miranda, who's over there, and she's super cool. We have been married for 20 years, as of like December, so that's kind of fun. Um, I feel on the one hand like that is a really long time, and on the other hand like that is nothing. So I don't know how to make that, what to make of that, but that's okay. We have five kids. Um, you can throw the picture up there if you want. Um, that's all of them. There's Maddie and then the boys. Uh, so Maddie's our eldest. She's here with us this morning. Uh, our sons are all, um, by God's grace, hanging out with grandparents in Texas at the present moment. So our house is much quieter than normal, and we're eating far less food than normal, and it is a glorious, wonderful thing. But uh, we have five kids. Maddie's 18. She's just graduated. She's off to school in the, like a month, which is not at all terrifying. And... Uh, we have Ethan, who's 16, and Cademan, who's 15. He's the one there in the, in the middle who got baptized this summer. And then we have Asher and Keegan, who are 13 and twins, and um, lots of double fun their whole life. So that's our family. Uh, we have been in Orlando for about six years. Uh, we moved to Orlando without a house yet. <laughs> on like the 28th of July, six years ago. So almost six years to the month. And uh, we came to be here with Wycliffe. Um, so uh, many of you probably know what, who, uh, what Wycliffe is. I think that's the right way to say that. And what we do. But for those of you who might not, or you might have slept since the last time you heard about Wycliffe, I'll tell you a little bit. Uh, so Wycliffe is like our sort of mission, vision, statement, or whatever, it says that we're committed to serving with the global body of Christ to advance Bible translation and work together so people can encounter God through his word. And um, you might think, well, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a lot of Bibles that are translated into a lot of languages. And like from a numerical perspective, you'd be right, but... Um, I want to share with you a little bit about the magnitude of the task that we're uh, involved in. So there are roughly 7,300 languages used in the world today, spoken, signed, and otherwise. And about 10% of them, or uh, I should say it this way, and for about 10% of them, the full Bible is available. I want to say that again. 7,300 languages in the world, about 730 have the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. So that gap is what our organization and, and many others and our partners and whatnot are working to address. Um, because we believe that one of the best ways for people to be able to know God is to hear or read or see what he says about himself through his word to his people in a language that they understand. So um, to put it in people numbers, um, that represents about 1.5 billion people on the planet who don't have access to God's word, the whole thing, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, now, 
in addition to that, that you know, there's, there's sort of a spectrum. So we have 7,300 languages, we have about 730 full Bibles, and then we have some spaces in the middle. We have, I think about 15, like people who speak 1,500 languages who don't have any scripture available at all in any way in their language. And that represents just under 200 million people. And then we have this big space in the middle where there might be a, a, a fragment or a book translated. You know, they might have the book of Luke or something like that, but they might not have the whole Old Testament or they might have some, uh, you know, whatever. So that's kind of what Wycliffe is about. Um, Miranda and I have been with Wycliffe for about 10 years. And in that time, this is really cool, the number of whole Bibles completed has gone from like 500 something to 700 something in just the last 10 years, which is like kind of cool. And for the, the math folks out there, when we joined Wycliffe 10 years ago, there were more languages remaining that needed to have some kind of translation project started in them than there were translation projects going on and active in the world. And today, those have inverted. There are more translation projects being pursued in more languages today than there are languages remaining that need one that don't have one. And those are encouraging things, but we're not done. However, I do foresee that potentially within my lifetime, um, it is possible that organizations like Wycliffe might have to reassess their, their goals, which is a kind of a cool thing because it's possible within our, within my lifetime, that we might see that number come really, really, really close to zero, which is exciting and a little bit terrifying. But, um, so, so that's what Wycliffe does. My job within Wycliffe, I work with a partner organization called SIL, and what I do is I, uh, I work with a team called International Language Services, which means nothing to most of us. It didn't mean anything to me until I heard about it. Uh, but basically, if you imagine all of the academic and technical and technological support services that a translation project team on the field might need, my team provides a lot of those kinds of services to teams around the world. So things like printing Bibles when a, when a translation is completed, or developing and maintaining the actual software that's used to conduct the actual translation, right? It's called Paratext, it's super cool. Um, all kinds of other things in between, that's what our team does. It's a team of about three or 400 people spread around the globe. And I'm part of the leadership team of that group, and my job, my official title is strategy advisor. So that means I talk to our various department leaders and whatnot around things of strategic importance. One of the big things I'm doing right now is every year we have our strategic planning for the next calendar year, or the next uh, fiscal year and all that. So we're doing all of that and I'm helping to marshal all of those things. And I do other things that my boss asked me to do that helps make him happy because that's always a good thing. And so that leads me to doing things like working on um, cross-organizational big goal things like engaging better with the church for our organization and uh, figuring out how to uh, be more connected with our local translation partners and whatnot, which is why I'm preaching on this Sunday because I will be out of town for every other Sunday in the month. <laughs> so Ben said, hey Dale, do you want to preach? I was like, yeah, sure. It has to be the first Sunday. 
He was like, why? I was like, because I'm going to be on the other side of the planet for the rest of them. And he was like, oh, yeah, we can do that. So that's a little bit about me and our organization. And the thing that drew us to Wycliffe is just the foundational nature of God's word. Like everything, the, the, the truth of the gospel, the formation that is necessary as believers, all of that rests on a foundation of being able to understand who God is through his word. So, um, that's a little bit about us and our organization. And so today, what I'd like to share with you to kind of illustrate that and to talk about that is what I'm calling the hope of the true light. And I will tell you a little bit of a backstory about this before we get to uh, reading from John, which we'll do here in a minute. Um, true story, this came about because of a rock opera. <laughs> I don't know if any of you are Five Iron Frenzy fans. Not single one of you. That's okay. I'll cry later. Uh, but as a, uh, the lead singer of Five Iron Frenzy had a side project called Brave St. Saturn, and it was like a three-album, like, rock opera kind of thing about uh, a group of space explorers that got lost in the darkness. And there's a particular song on there called Daylight, and it's talking about them coming out of the darkness and into the light. And... I think that's a really cool way to think about what happens when we encounter God through his word. He moves us out of darkness and into light. And so I want to talk to you about that today and sort of the vision that Wycliffe and all of our partners have to help people move out of the darkness into the light through access to God's word. So... Are we ready? There we go. All right, so we're going to be reading today from the NLT, which uh, is the New Living Translation. Um, it is one that is regularly used within the context of Wycliffe, and I thought it would be really appropriate. Um, it's a little bit different, maybe a little bit more approachable, maybe not. Um, personally, I'm a NASB geek, but don't tell anybody. But we're going to be reading from the, uh, the NLT today, so um, I will read. From John 1, 1 through 9. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing that was created was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So that's our sort of primary text for today. And one of the things, it's, it's impossible to talk about light without talking about darkness. John himself, even in that introduction to his book, did that, right? I'm going to refer back to that. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. I like that particular translation there. But um, I don't know if you know what it's like to be in the dark. Um, as I mentioned, we have a few kids, and... We used to live in a house in Houston, that's where we lived before we came to Orlando, and we had a bathroom in the upstairs of our house, and all of the kids' rooms were also upstairs, and one of our children 
I won't name him, but normally here's, he's the most fearless, bravest, just adventurous one of all of them. Um, there was a season in his life where we were trying to help him kind of figure out how he needed to sleep and regulate his daytime behavior and whatnot. And so we were with a couple of doctors, you know, probably a handful, a half dozen doctors and whatnot. We were experimenting with a few different kinds of medication to, to help him manage all of that stuff. And one of them had some pretty wonky side effects. And one of those side effects was, there. He, I don't know exactly what happened to this day, but he was... I don't know, early elementary aged. And he had taken the meds and it was nighttime and he got up and he went to the bathroom because you know, sometimes that happens. And something happened in that trip in the dark. Something happened in that trip in the dark that struck absolute terror in his heart. And for the, the rest of his time in that home, Literally, until the day we moved out, he refused to go upstairs in the dark by himself because of the fear that he experienced in the dark. Even with the lights on, he wanted someone with him. He, so so there's, there's something fundamentally scary and sometimes intimidating about being in the dark. And that, that sort of hopelessness and fear that comes along with that. Now, I will share with you, beyond you know being scared of the dark in the bathroom in the upstairs of our old house, I will share with you the darkest place in the world that I myself have physically been. Now, we can share that picture here. Now, I don't know if um, many of you know where Roaring Springs, Texas is. You'd be forgiven for not knowing. Um, but that is where my, my, my dad grew up and where my grandparents had some land and whatnot. And if you look at that little tiny arrow, that yellow arrow that's there, that is a place where I spent two nights camping in our truck by myself when I went back to go for my grandmother's funeral in 2020. Um, there was literally no room at the one hotel that was within about 30 miles drive. And I thought, you know, I have a truck, there's a pasture, I can sleep. And it was awesome, it was glorious, but um, I don't know if you can tell from that picture, but you know what's conspicuously absent there? Anything but roads and fences and grass and maybe cows. Like literally within a mile of that, that, that location, I don't know that there's a single structure. Like my grandparents' house is a mile down the road, like down the hill. And if you go to the next picture, that's what it looks like from the road. That fence there, you can't really see it, but that fence with the shiny stuff and the little wagon wheel in the middle, that's the beginning of their property right there. And kind of beyond in the middle there is where I camped. And then the sun went down. And it was dark. I shut the door to, you know, you open the door to your car and like the lights come on. And I was getting ready and it was dark and I was getting ready and it was dark and I, I, I got out of the truck and I shut the door and the lights went off. And it was dark. And the darkness surrounded me. Everywhere I looked, there were shadows and there were stars. And that was it. And uh, uh, that's the darkest place I've ever been on the planet yet that wasn't below the ground. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Florida Caverns, but it's pretty cool. You should check it out. But there's a 
part in the tour where they turn off the lights in there and it is like you literally can't see your hand in front of your face. And depending on where you are with your maker and your emotional state that day, it might be, magnif it might be magnificent or it might be terrifying. <laughs> but the darkness can be overwhelming. So we can, we, we can experience some fear and some hopelessness in like literal darkness or it can be overwhelming just from being physically in the dark. But I wanna share a little bit about maybe a metaphorical darkness. Some of you may have experienced the, 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 the literal darkness. Some of you may be experiencing yet today the metaphorical darkness. And so I wanna to turn to the Psalms. I'm gonna make some assumptions here that this is David lamenting. Um, he did most of the Psalms, I'm just gonna go with it. But in Psalm 77, the Psalmist describes this kind of like metaphorical darkness that I'm talking about. So if we want to go there, I want to just read the first nine verses. I'm going to read all nine of them because I think they demonstrate some things that are worth hearing. And again, this is from the NLT. In Psalm 77, the psalmist says, I cry out to God, yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I am too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days, long since ended, when my nights were filled instead with joyous song. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Has his prom have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door in his compassion? All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. So I don't know about you, but it's possible that you have experienced this kind of darkness in your life. I know there have been a few times where I have. Um, it's heavy and it's difficult. But, go to the next slide, no matter how dark it is, the light is stronger and the light gives hope. So I wanna tell you a little bit of a story about this guy. This is my favorite orange flashlight that I own. Coincidentally, it's the only orange flashlight I own. <laughs> but it's super cool because it's orange. And if you ask my kids, um, I have many things that are orange because I like that color. It makes my heart happy. Um, but I, was, I, I had an occasion this week to help a friend out. He called me and he said, hey, Dale, my, um, my van... It's not, it's not so happy. There's something broken. And I went to help him and he had a broken water pump and a busted radiator and some other stuff. And so I spent the good part, a better part of like Thursday when I should have been hanging out with my family instead helping him with that. And it was cool and I don't mind. Uh, but in that moment, I was working on his van and even though it was daylight and the hood was open, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the inner reaches of a 2001 Dodge Ram 1500 cargo van. <laughs> But there are some parts that aren't very bright, aren't very light, well lit. And I was trying to like get to some certain bolt and I couldn't see and I like the ratchet wasn't going where it needed to go. And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out my flashlight 
Now, it's not very bright. It's not. At this setting, it's like, I don't know, 25 or 50 lumens or whatever. But in the midst of the depths of that engine compartment, it was more than enough for me to see the way that I needed to go to deal with the problem. It doesn't take much light because, let me go back to this, because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot extinguish it. Now, I want to go back to, you know, it's, I, don't know if I don't know if you've read through the Psalms or what have you recently, but um, you, know those, you know that diagram of like talking about your plans where it's like your plans, you start here and you end here, and then reality is you start here and there's all this like stuff in the middle. I feel like the Psalms are the literary poetic representation of that in David's life. Because you look in Psalm 77 and 88, if you want to go further, and you see the depths. But then you look in Psalm 27, and you see one of those high points that, that he had. And in Psalm 27, the psalmist says, it's just one verse, just one verse. The Lord is my light and salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? Because David knew the value of light. David knew the source of his light. I mean, he made some pretty boneheaded decisions in his life, but at least he knew that. Um, he knew that the source of light in his life was the Lord God. And when he was on the mountaintop... That was what he celebrated. And I want to share a little bit, sorry, my papers got confused, about another understanding of light. And this comes from a, this comes from, um, a people group called the Taboli, which um, they live and exist in Southeast Asia. And in their belief structure, they understood that, I mean, they, they believed in life after death. They did. And they believed that, that, that this life and eternity were connected by a bridge. And in order to traverse that bridge, you had to carry light from this world into the next but your body dies. So how is it possible for one to carry light from this place to that place? Well, the way that they solved that problem, the way that they understood that problem to be solved was to burn themselves and to create scars on their body. And scars on their body in this life allowed them to carry light across the bridge to eternity. And be be between this world and eternity, there was an evil spirit who tried to push people off of that bridge into a bottomless abyss. But he was scared of the light. So they would carry the light and they would burn their bodies. So you would see adults 
old people, young people, even children, with all kinds of scars on their body. And the regular method that they used is, you know, they take bits of cotton and dip them in kerosene and light them and then scar the arms and the chest and the legs and whatnot so that they could carry the light with them from this life to what came after. The more scars you had, the more light you carried, the more likely you were to get across that bridge. In the midst of pursuing translating the Bible into the language of the Diboli, the translation group came to the place where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And they understood where the true light comes from and the hope that comes with it. So today, if you visit the Diboli, you might see children, you're, you're likely to see children who have no scars on their bodies. And when you ask the parents why their children no longer have the scars that they themselves might have, that their grandparents had, that their parents before them had, they would answer you that Jesus is their light. Jesus bears the scars. Jesus will carry them across the bridge. That is the power of having access to the truth of God's word in a language that people understand because they understand the source of the true light and the hope that he brings. And when we understand God's word, the true light is revealed. And I want to read to you a little bit from 2 Corinthians 4. There we go. All right. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. When we have access to God's word, the true light is revealed. And I want to share with you one last story. And I think in all of the stories that Miranda and I have heard about the ways in which access to God's word in a language that one understands has transformed people, I think this one is my favorite and it might be hers too. And this is a story that comes from the Yambetta people uh, who live in Cameroon. And there was a dude, a Yambetta man named Leonard. Leonard was a super cool dude. Leonard um, had heard about translation work that was going on and the fact that he could um, 
translate the French scriptures, because that's predominantly what he had in his, uh, you know, in, where he was, into the Yambeta language. And so Leonard did that. Now, Leonard was a believer. Leonard was part of a church that existed and had been in existence for a long time in his community. He was part of a fellowship of believers. Predominantly, they used French for their texts, for their scripture. Leonard had, trans, had begun translating the Bible into the Yambada language, his language, the language of his people, the language of the people who attended his church. And for Easter every year, his, you know, his congregation would read the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection aloud on Easter Sunday, which is a pretty cool practice, by the way, definitely a good idea. In this particular year, Leonard approached his pastor and said, Hey, pastor, can I read it this year and can I read it in our language? And the pastor, being a wise man apparently, said, Yeah, sure, we can do that. So as is the practice, as was the practice, Leonard got up at the right time in the congregation and began to read the crucifixion story and the resurrection story in the language of the people who were sitting in the pews in front of him. The believers who sat there, who, who said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Yes, I want to believe. These people. As he read the story, the congregation got quiet. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to church in West Africa, but the words that I would use to describe it would not normally include quiet. And they got quiet. And as he continued to read, read I, can, I can speak, I promise. As he continued to read, they got quieter and quieter until some of the little old ladies that were in the front, they started to weep. And he kept reading. And they kept crying. And he kept reading. And he finished the story. After the service, these, these women came to him and they said, Leonard... Where did you find this story? And he was confused, as some of you are right now. And they said, we have never heard anything like this before. And Leonard said, it's right here in the French Bible we read every, every year. And they said, no, 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 no. We never knew that there was someone who loved us so much that he was willing to suffer and die in that way, to be crucified on a cross to save us. They understood because they heard it in a language that, they, that spoke to their hearts. That is the power of the work that God has called our organization to do that is the power of having access to God's word in a language that we understand. And that is a power that is really, really cool. So you might be asking yourself, so what? How do I respond? Well, the first thing that I would say is, if you have not yet, you might consider calling out to the true light. You might be experiencing darkness today. Call out to the true light. That's one. 
Two, if you're a believer, let your light shine everywhere you go. I want to read to you in Jesus' own words from Matthew 5. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, you put the lamp on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So let your light shine. And last, maybe what I've shared with you has sparked a little bit of interest. Maybe you're more curious about what it might mean for you to be involved in whatever it is that God has called you to do. So I would say, get involved. Pray for the billions of people around the world who don't have access to the whole Bible in a language that speaks to their heart. Pray for the nearly 200 million that don't have a single verse of scripture accessible in their language. Pray for them to understand who God is and to know the true light. Pray for the workers. Wycliffe is one of hundreds of organizations that are working in our country and around the world to help people know who the true light is. Maybe you have some people in your life. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they're your neighbors. In this part of Orlando, probably is true. Um, pray for them. Pray that Satan's desires will be thwarted. Pray that the resources that are needed to do the work are there. Pray for their financial well-being because the overwhelming majority of us, my, you know, our family included, are supported, right? So like we get paid this month what people gave to Wycliffe on our behalf last month to support the work that we're doing. And we have lived for 10 years plus in that way. Um, God has been good, but it has not been easy. And I imagine that is probably the case for every single supported missionary in the world, especially in Orlando and even in this church. And then get involved in some way, participate in some way, whatever that means in whatever it is that God has called you to do, to bring the truth about the true light of Jesus to those who need it. So that would be what I would ask of you today. Thank you for being with us on this sort of journey. Thank you for letting me share with you and laughing at mostly the appropriate times. <laughs> and um, I would like to pray and then I will turn it over to Ben, I think. Father God, thank you for the privilege of being able to share your word with your people. Thank you for sending your son who is the true light of the world. And thank you for sharing that, that, that truth and that reality with us. We pray that your word is fruitful in this place. And um, we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.